Hey guys, welcome to Line by Line. This is a podcast where you can hear expository teaching from the Word of God, line upon line, precept upon precept. So thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoy it. God bless, and let's talk about the Bible. Tonight we're going to be in Psalm chapter 41 in our study through the book of Psalms. And the title to this psalm is very simple. It's obviously one that we've seen many, many times before in our study already. It says, To the chief musician, a psalm of David. So David, of course, is our author. And the theme of this psalm, if you were to give it one, I think you could say it's the blessing and the suffering of the godly. I think that would be a good theme for Psalm 41. But as we're going to look a little deeper into this psalm, I think that we're going to see that it's also a messianic psalm, at least in part, because it prophetically predicts the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. And we'll see that in verse 9. So Psalm 41 is about both blessing and betrayal. So let me read it out loud and then we'll talk about it. Psalm 41, starting in verse 1. Blessed is he who considers the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive, and he will be blessed on the earth. You will not deliver him to the will of his enemies. The Lord will strengthen him on his bed of illness. You will sustain him on his sickbed. I said, Lord, be merciful to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. My enemies speak evil of me. When will he die and his name perish? And if he comes to see me, he speaks lies. His heart gathers iniquity to itself. When he goes out, he tells it. Verse 7, All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt. An evil disease, they say, clings to him. And now that he lies down, he will rise up no more. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. But you, O Lord... Be merciful to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you are well pleased with me, because my enemy does not triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity and set me before your face forever. In verse 13, blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. All right, so... Just a few observations here before we get into our verse-by-verse study of the text. Psalm 41, as some of you may know, is the last book, or the last psalm, rather, in book one of the Psalms. So it's also the second largest book out of the five books total that we see in Psalms. Of course, this book has 41 Psalms total. Book two is going to consist of Psalms 42 through 72, so 31 Psalms in book two. Book three is going to consist consist of Psalms 73 through 89, so only 17 Psalms in that book, book 3. Book 4 is going to consist of Psalms 90 through Psalms 106. Again, only 17 books in book 4. And then book 5 is going to be from Psalm 107 to Psalm 150. That'll take us to the end. That's book 5, which is, by the way, the largest book of the five books with 44 Psalms total. But in this Psalm here, Again, we see both the blessing of the godly and the suffering of the godly. We see both of these things. We see physical sickness in verse 3. We see spiritual sickness in verse 4. 
So we see David having to deal with slander. He's having to deal with gossip from his enemies. That's verses 5 through 8. And then we even see him being betrayed by a friend. That's verse 9. But even after all of this, David is able to claim the mercy of God that not only protects him from his enemies, verse 11, but also upholds him in his integrity, verse 12. And so he's able to end this song with that's by any means really sort of a downer. You know, it's about suffering. But he's able to wrap this psalm up in verse 13 with a beautiful doxology and a double amen right there at the very end of verse 13. So to me, this psalm actually gives me hope. I get a great deal of hope from Psalm 13 because even in the midst of David's illness, whatever that was, we don't know. And even in the midst of his enemies spreading lie after lie about him and basically hoping that his disease ends up being terminal. And even though a one-time close friend betrays him, David absolutely knew that his God was merciful and well-pleased with him. And he was actually keeping him from falling and losing his integrity here. I mean, where else can you find help and hope like that than in a relationship with God? That's the only place I can think of. I mean, who else can say, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting after having been through what David describes here? Okay, who else can say those things than somebody who has a relationship with their God, somebody who has trusted in God? I mean, Christianity may not be easy, and in fact, it's not, okay? But one thing that Christianity does for us is give us hope. We have a great deal of hope, again, because Christ has risen from the dead. The life of a Christian may be just as difficult as anybody else's on the planet, but nobody else except for a Christian can lie on their sick bed, facing a deadly disease with their enemies all around them excited about their impending death, their friends betraying them, and still have hope. Only a Christian can say that. Only a Christian can have hope in that kind of circumstance of life. And of course, our Savior knows all about this, right? Christ has overcome a betrayal of a friend. He has defeated all of his enemies at the cross and therefore if we are in Christ by faith guess what we also have hope praise God for that verse 1 blessed is he who considers the poor the Lord will deliver him in time of trouble okay so one of the marks of a true believer here that we see in verse 1 is his or her consideration of the poor it's one of the marks of a true believer and God will bless those who actually help them who will help the poor. Now, but to be poor, this is important, it doesn't necessarily always mean lack of money. Okay, so that doesn't describe or define poverty because people can be poor in a lot of different ways. Okay, for example, poor can mean weak. It can mean helpless. So there's a number of ways that people can experience poverty in their life. And therefore, David gives us some very wise counsel here. And he says, consider the poor. That's an interesting word to use. In other words, don't just run out and throw your bank account at them. Consider them. Be prudent. Okay? In other words, get an understanding of their situation. Have a big heart, absolutely. Have a big heart, but be wise about what you give to whom. For example, 
It is neither considerate nor wise to give a pile of money to somebody with a gambling addiction. Not wise. And that's not being considerate of them either. So I think the idea here is to be careful that in your giving, when you give, that you're not actually enabling bad behavior. We don't want to enable addiction or sin. No, we want to consider this situation first, right? Deacon ministries in the church operate this way very well, for example, okay? Deacons, they want to serve people. They want to help people. That's why they're there. The literal meaning of the word deacon is table waiter. So they're helpers, okay? But they also have to be very, very wise with what they give to whom because this is the Lord's money. They want to be very wise on how the Lord's money is distributed, okay? So therefore, they try to get to know the people before they just distribute anything. They try to gain an understanding of their situation before they commit to any financial help to them. So in other words, they are considering the poor. And I think our deacon ministry here at Shoreline Community Church does this very, very well. Uh, they're very big-hearted, but they are also very considerate. And so they get to know people, and when they get to know them and they establish that the need is real, they're very, very generous, and I think that's the way it ought to be done. But again, to be poor doesn't always mean to have a lack of money, okay? Listen to what F.B. Meyer said. He said, There are plenty around you who, if not poor in the things of this world, are poor in love or poor in hope, or maybe they're poor in knowledge of God. So amen to that. These are the different ways that we can experience poverty. Maybe you're not in a position to help somebody financially, but that's okay. Maybe you can help somebody who isn't loved well. Maybe you can love on them well. Maybe you can help somebody who doesn't have hope. Maybe you can help them to see the hope that we have in Christ Jesus, right? Help somebody who doesn't know God. There's, again, different areas of poverty that we need to be mindful of. Jesus said this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's Matthew 5, 3. So that's something right there that every single Christian can do. We can humble ourselves and become poor in spirit so as to show somebody the love and hope of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of us need to be very generous givers of the gospel, in other words. Verses 2 and 3, The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive, and he will be blessed on the earth. You will not deliver him to the will of his enemies. Verse 3, the Lord will strengthen him on his bed of illness. You will sustain him on his sickbed. So, David seems to be referring to the old covenant here, obviously. I mean, which of course was the only covenant that he was aware of during his life. But in Deuteronomy chapter 28, we see a list of blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Again, Deuteronomy 28. And they are all blessings or cursings that would occur during this life, okay, during someone's life on earth. Or as David says here again, yeah, on the earth. So the law, this tells us that the law was never ever intended to give somebody eternal life. Okay, that's not the deal. The, the law was based on blessings or cursings here on earth, right? Obedience resulted in blessings. Disobedience resulted in cursings, but I want you to notice something else. All of the benefits that come from considering the poor in verse 1, look at all of them. We see a bunch of them listed in verses 2 and 3. There's many benefits. I counted five 
five different benefits in the first three verses for considering the poor. So those who consider the poor, God's going to do at least these five things. He will bless them. We see that in verse 1 and 2. He will deliver them, verse 1. He will preserve them, verse 2. He will strengthen them, that's verse 3. And He will sustain them, again, verse 3. Now again, that sounds like a pretty good deal to me. Right? That's a great trade-off for us. Do my best to help those who can't help themselves, and in return, God is going to bless me. I'm going to receive blessings from the Lord and deliverance in times of trouble. I'll also be preserved and kept alive, even though my enemies may seek to kill me, and I will receive strength as God sustains me on my sick bed. I mean, wouldn't you rather just entrust your life to God and let Him take care of it? It sounds like He will do a much better job of that than I can. Just walk in obedience to the Lord, help some people along the way as you can, and then trust in God to sustain you along the way. Or as Jesus said it, he said it like this very succinctly. Jesus said, love God, love your neighbor, right? That's Matthew chapter 27, verses 37 through 40. If we do that, God will keep us alive and he will keep us healthy and well for just exactly as long as he needs us to be alive and well. And so also with New Testament revelation here, speaking to the new covenant, now we know that our blessings are eternal and our rewards are in heaven. So David obviously was looking for earthly rewards based on his covenant that he was aware of during his time. But again, with New Testament revelation, we understand that our rewards are in heaven and our blessings are eternal. So much better from the New Testament point of view. Verse 4, I said, Lord, be merciful to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. So as we've seen before in the book of Psalms here, when David is physically sick, he does something, and he does it a lot. One of the first things that he does is he confesses his sin before God. When he comes down with something, when he gets sick physically, the first thing he does is confess his sins before God. And I think this is a very, very wise thing for us to do. You know, Lord, I'm trusting in your promises to keep me alive just as long as you want me to be here, right? But most importantly, I need you to heal my soul because I've sinned against you. That's what's going on here. Physical sickness is one thing, Lord, but soul sickness is quite another. Okay, so Lord, please be merciful to me. I think that that's the attitude that David has here in verse 4. James Montgomery Boyce writes this, This is a plea for mercy in view of the merciless treatment the psalmist has been receiving from his foes and from his friends alike. And he's exactly right. David has just written about being considerate to those people who are in need, while at the same time he's being ridiculed in his time of need. That just doesn't seem fair, does it? But what, does, what did Jesus say? Remember the words of our Savior, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. That's Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. So you see, when we show consideration to the poor, when we do that, we're actually being like Christ. We're being Christ-like because here's the deal. You and I were sick with our sin completely, weren't we? We were the ones that were poor. We were destitute and utterly unable to help ourselves until Christ came along and considered our poverty. And then He brought us mercy through His cross. So when we are considering the poor, we're being very Christ-like because He considered us in our poverty. When we were the poorest of the poor, 
yet we found healing for our soul in Christ through the mercy of our Savior. But notice something here. Mercy comes through an honest admission of our poverty. Okay, That's where mercy comes from, which obviously our poverty is our sin. So David is not crying out for mercy because he thinks he deserves it. No, he's not saying that at all. He's crying out to God for mercy because he knows that he is a sinner. Right? Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. So he's asking God to consider his poverty, which is obviously not the case for David's enemies. Look at verse 5. My enemies speak evil of me. When will he die and his name perish? So David's enemies are sitting here wishing for his death. David has his focus on God, even in the midst of these people who have this death wish against him. I mean, David has clearly put his focus on God, the very one who knew the measure of his days. So he's not worried about dying too soon. We talked about that in Psalm 39, verse 4. I mean, God knows the measure of his days. But isn't it comforting to know here that as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, I look at it like this. We are absolutely invincible in this world until God decides to take us home. Period. We don't have to worry about going home too soon or too late. No, when God takes us home, it'll be the exact right time. So even though the enemies of David have a death wish for him, he knows that God knows the numbers of his days, so he has faith in that. It gives him a great deal of confidence, and it should for you and me too. I mean, our fiercest enemies can wish death upon us. Our friends can betray us, but we're not going anywhere until the Lord says so. That's the bottom line, and to me, that's very, very comforting. But I think there may be another principle that we can learn here from this passage, because think about this. David was a good king. Okay, Scripture tells us that. But he had very, he had a very many enemies. He had a lot of them, Okay, even though he was a good king. So what we learn, I think, is that living for God doesn't remove us from the battle. Okay, it doesn't mean that everybody's going to be our friend, that we're going to be able to curry favor with everyone. Of course not. In fact, the opposite may be true. The more that you live for Christ, it's likely the more enemies you'll have. And so that's kind of how this work, I, I, works. I like what Adam Clark says here. He writes, It's often a good man's lot to be evil spoken of, to have his motives and even his most benevolent acts misconstrued. That's right. The enemies of David are lying all about him. I mean, what they're saying is not true, uh, even though he was a good king. And that's just kind of the lot that falls to believers in Jesus Christ, you know? I mean, that's how Christ was treated. How should we expect to be treated any differently? I mean, we need to get used to the fact that the closer we get to Christ, uh, the more enemies we may see ourselves surrounded by. Um, So expect that. Expect to be ridiculed. Expect especially today, and we just talked about this a little bit in our prayer time, since persecution is now here, expect it. Don't be surprised by that. Prepare for it, right? I mean, nobody was more ridiculed, nobody was more falsely accused than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. David here is a type of Christ, and the same thing is going to happen to you and I if we walk with Christ. Verse 6, And if he comes to see me, he speaks lies. His heart gathers iniquity to itself. When he goes out, he tells it. So notice the front here 
that David's enemies are putting on. They're putting on a pretty good front, but all of it's a lie. All of it is fake. I mean, sure, they come to see David when he's sick. They may come to do that. But if they do, they sit there and lie to his face. And then they run out and blab to everybody about his condition. I mean, these people had absolutely no respect for their king. None. These guys were being hypocrites. Uh, I think James Montgomery Boyce, again, he nails it here when he says, when they visited the king, they said the right things, right? He said, oh, they would say things like, we're so sorry to hear that you're sick. We've been praying for you. We're going to continue to pray for you. We hope that you're going to get better real soon. Everything's being taken care of. Is there anything that we can do for you? But these words were utter hypocrisy. These people were not hoping that David would get well at all. After they left him, they said things like, man, didn't that guy look terrible? I mean, I don't think he's going to make it very long, do you? So you see how they're acting here. I mean, that's embellished a little bit here, you know, from what James Montgomery Boyce writes. It's a little embellished, but I think he really hits on the truth of what's happening. These people were two-faced, okay? And they had bad intentions for David from the very start. David says that his heart gathers iniquity to itself. And what an amazing word picture that is. A heart that gathers iniquity to itself. I like what David Guzik says. He says, David thought of the evil heart like a magnet, constantly drawing additional sin and iniquity unto itself. That's the word picture here. That's exactly right. So these people weren't trying to help David at all. They weren't trying to lift him up. No, they were actually gathering more information about him so that they could spread more lies about him. And David was in such poor physical, physical condition at this point, this just gave these guys more ammunition that they could use against him. Verse 7, All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt. So here we see the damage that whispering words can do. I mean, people who whisper behind your back can absolutely hurt you. But I want you to notice how cowardly evil is here. Evil is cowardly because evil whispers instead of speaking up, doesn't it? Evil is a coward. So beware of those people who whisper because they might have something to hide. So be careful. They're, they may be operating in darkness rather than light. And we need to understand that truth doesn't operate that way. Okay, Truth doesn't hide behind whispers. Truth is not afraid to speak up where everybody can hear it. It doesn't need to whisper. Spurgeon says this. He says, why could they not speak out? Were they afraid of the sick warrior? Or were their designs so treacherous that they must needs be hatched in secrecy? Who knows? That could be true. I mean, the plans that they had for David were probably so devious that they needed to whisper, obviously, behind his back. So David, again, is experiencing some of the exact same treatment that Christ would later experience for you and I on his way to the cross. And by extension, as we've talked about, every follower of Jesus Christ will most likely experience at some point in our life. But even though the follower of Christ, the Christian, is eternally protected and provided for, we see that again in verses 2 and 3 here, the truth is this, we're not, as believers, immune to the stinging words of gossip 
and slander. We're not immune to that. It still hurts. And so we've got to be very, very careful because we can feel that pain. And the pain that we feel from gossip and whispering and chattering and slander, that pain is very, very real. And it takes a long time to heal from that kind of pain. So all of these lies, <coughs> excuse me, and the two-faced hurtful whispers here that we're reading about, they're really no different than kicking a guy when he's down. David is down physically, uh, and they're just kicking David while he's down. Again, this is how evil, or how cowardly evil is, rather. It would rather kick a man while he's down to completely defeat him. So, again, we see just how cowardly evil is. But one thing about evil that we need to understand is that it absolutely knows how to take advantage of an opportunity. And so that's what they're doing. In fact, David's enemies hoped that all of these conspiracies, all of these lies that they were telling and whispering behind his back, their hope was that it would finish him off. Look at verse 8. An evil disease, they say, clings to him. And now that he lies down, he will rise up no more. So, guys, the rumor has it that this disease that King David has here, it's going to kill him. That's the rumor going around town. Oh, man, wouldn't they love for that to be the case? If this thing would just go ahead and finish off David. Because then they wouldn't have this pesky king running around out there always invoking God and everything. Promoting a lifestyle of obedience to the Word of God. No, we, we don't like that. I mean, things would just be a whole lot better <coughs> Excuse me. if we didn't have this moral standard to live by. Does that sound familiar today? You know, we got to get rid of this guy, even if we have to betray him. If the whispers and the lies don't work, maybe we need to betray him in order to get rid of him. Verse 9, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. So David now has his heartache increased. It's like raised up another notch by the betrayal of his own friend. As if the hurtful, gossiping words of his enemies weren't enough, now he's been betrayed by a friend. He's got an old friend who has taken action against him. This is like rubbing salt in the wound here. And so David uses the idiom, he lifted up his heel against me. Which, I mean, that's obviously worse than just turning your back on someone, right? I mean, he uses this idiom for a reason. Because to lift up your heel against somebody would be more like stabbing somebody in the back. Okay, Spurgeon said, He didn't merely turn his back on me, but left me with a heavy kick, such as a vicious horse might have. That's exactly right. So David's friend has essentially added injury to insult. Okay, he's been insulted, now he's being injured. It hurts when you're betrayed by a friend. Now, many scholars believe that this friend that David is referring to here is a guy by the name of Ahithophel. Okay? You can read about him in 2 Samuel because Ahithophel, he was a trusted advisor of David, and he actually sided with David's son Absalom in the rebellion. That's 2 Samuel 15, 31. And not so ironically, right, but rather prophetically, Ahithophel ended up committing suicide by hanging himself. That's 2 Samuel 17, 23. Again, sound familiar? 
Jesus quoted this exact verse in uh, reference to Judas in John 13, verse 18, when Christ said, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but, the, but that the scripture might be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. He quotes Psalm 41, verse 9. Of course, Judas would go on to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. We read about that in Matthew 26, 15. And later, he would have so much remorse and regret for his actions that he himself, Judas, would go ahead and commit suicide by also hanging himself, as you know from Matthew 27, 5. So this verse here, Psalm 41, 9, was ultimately fulfilled in the life of Judas, as we read about in John 13, 18, and it was confirmed also. This is also very interesting. And again, part of what makes Psalm 41 messianic this was confirmed as a prophetic fulfillment of Scripture by Peter in Acts chapter 1, verse 16, which says, Men and brethren, this Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. So the heartache and the betrayal that we see here in the life of David is a foreshadowing of the heartache and betrayal that we're going to see in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the pain was very, very real. Spurgeon again says, The kiss of the traitor wounded our Lord's heart as much as the nail wounded his hand. So true. Think about that. Think about how you've been wounded in your life by hurtful words of people. How much that stung on the inside. It's akin to a nail being driven through your hand or your feet on the outside. Of course, the wounds that our Savior incurred were by our sin. It was a result of our own sin. And then they would eventually put Christ in the grave. But just as David's enemies had hoped for his death, Christ's enemies also hoped for his death. But as we know, again from New Testament revelation, the grave has no hold on either Christ nor the Christian. Verse 10, But you, O Lord, be merciful to me and raise me up that I may repay them. Amen. So in the truest sense of this verse here, verse 10, it is referring to the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Christ would rise again from the dead, defeating and overcoming the wounds of his enemies and defeating and overcoming the betrayal of his friend. And because Christ is risen, then of course, we have assurance as believers in Christ that we will be resurrected unto new life in him eternal life in him listen to colossians chapter 2 verse 12 it says for you were buried with christ when you were baptized and with him you were raised to new life why because you trusted the mighty power of god who raised christ from the dead amen so the mighty resurrecting power of god is the same for the believer as it was for christ we need to understand that and of course christ He's going to have the last word in regard to his enemies. Christ will repay them, just as David writes here in verse 10. But I think we need to address something here specifically, because if you read this on its face, it may come off as a little shrewd. Um, some people have trouble here with David actually saying, I will repay them. That seems a little odd here in this verse. And I agree, it does seem unusual for him to say that, because most generally what you find in the imprecatory psalms, which are the psalms where David calls down judgment, 
most generally what you find there is that David will leave all of the retaliation up to God. Okay, you will avenge them, God, or, or whatever. He leaves all of that retaliation up to God, as he should, but it doesn't seem like it here. So why is that different? Why would David say that I will repay them? Well, I've already explained the true meaning of this verse in that it relates to Christ, but as it relates to David and why he would say something like I will repay them, I would say this. I think David is simply understanding his judicial responsibilities as king, okay? I mean, he did have to still govern the people. He was still king, and the office of king requires that you bring justice to situations. And so I like what William MacDonald says here. He says, we must remember that he was the Lord's anointed ruler of Israel, and it was his duty as king to deal with sedition and betrayal, and that's exactly right. So David, when he says, I will repay them, he wasn't seeking revenge. Okay, that's not what he's saying at all. He was actually fulfilling his duty as the Lord's anointed king. Verse 11, by this, I know that you are well pleased with me because my enemy does not triumph over me. So David uses the failure of his enemies here as evidence of God being pleased with him. Interesting. Remember verse 2, the Lord will preserve him and keep him alive and he will be blessed on the earth so david knows that with god a promise made is a promise kept and we see that in the life of david here verse 12 as for me you uphold me in my integrity and set me before your face forever so david recognizes that it's god who is working in him that allows him to keep his integrity. David is not claiming any credit for that. David understands that he's accomplished nothing in his own strength. Again, verse 3 says, The Lord will strengthen him on his bed of illness. You will sustain him on his sickbed. Right? So not only has God maintained David's integrity against the lies of his enemies and his former friends, by the way, he's also strengthened him in this illness by setting him before his very face. Wow. Now to be before God's face means that you are in a place of favor. Okay? A place of protection. To be before God's face, you are in a place of blessing. A place that is safe from your enemies. And a place that's going to be very secure for all of eternity. And notice, again, I like what David Guzik points out here. He says, all of the benefits of verses 11 and 12 are in the present tense. David didn't believe that God would bring them to him. He believed that he had them already. And I think that's an interesting thing to point out here because it agrees with what Paul says in Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Amen. So we have been saved, past tense. Right? We are being saved, present tense, and we will be saved, but we have been blessed. These blessings from God are ours already in Christ Jesus. So we don't have to actually wait for heaven to enjoy the blessings of the Lord today. These are in the present tense. He will uphold our integrity. Why? Because He has set us before His face forever. And so we can sing right along with David here in verse 13. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. So I love 
how David closes this psalm here with a beautiful doxology, a beautiful hymn of praise, if you will, praising the covenant God of Israel. He says, Lord God, that's Yehovah Elohim. That's who he's praising here, which means the existing one from everlasting to everlasting. Okay, again, meaning that this God, Jehovah Elohim, he has always existed and he will always exist. And then check it out. He doubles down on the amen. I love that. Amen and amen. One amen for each everlasting. G. Campbell Morgan writes, the word everlasting in Hebrew means the vanishing point. The idea is that the God of Israel is Jehovah from the past, which is beyond human knowledge, and to the future, which is equally so. To us, the great truth is made clear in the words of Jesus, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Amen. J. Vernon McGee writes, Amen and Amen means that God put the finishing touches on our salvation when Christ rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ finished the work of salvation for us. And he's exactly right. And thank you, Lord. What a way to end a difficult psalm of sickness and hurt and heartache with praise to Jehovah Elohim, the existing one, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. So be it. So be it. Praise God. What a way to end the first book of Psalms. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for Psalm 41 and how we see so much of our Lord Jesus Christ in this psalm and the prophetic words of David. And um, Lord, you were betrayed just as he was, but on a much larger scale. And in a way, Lord, that yes, we can relate to in one sense, but in another, we, we really can't. Um, because you were headed to the cross. And this was a part of the Father's will and plan from eternity past that you would do that. And this is a step toward that, toward the cross. And so uh, it gives us hope in your word when we see the prophetic come true, when we can read about the promises or we read about the prophecies and then we also see them fulfilled. It just validates the entire truth of Scripture from cover to cover. And we thank you for that. But Lord, also we understand that if we are in Christ, if we're Christians, then we're essentially little Christs. And so we should expect to be betrayed. We should expect to be ridiculed. Uh, we should expect to have more and more enemies the closer that we walk with you and the, the more obedient we are to your word. Uh, to the point to where even some of our friends, people that have been long trusted, end up betraying us. And uh, so help us, Lord, to not long for that, but, but if it happens, not be surprised by it either because it happened to you. It's certainly possible that it happens to us, but when persecution happens, Lord, help us to deal with it like you did. Lord, to, to be strong, 
to face it with faith and to purpose in our own hearts that above our own desires, above our own wishes, above our own wants, that the will of the Father be done. And we thank you for your obedience to the Father all the way to the cross. So help us, Lord, through the strength that you give us in your Holy Spirit, be faithful unto death, faithful even to death, regardless of what kind of persecution might come our way, regardless of what kind of sickness might come our way. We understand, Lord, that every breath we take in is a gift from you, and any day we could get the call saying, we have cancer, or this tragedy happened, or that happened. We understand how frail and how fragile we are, but we take heart in the truth that we find in this psalm, just like David did, and know that we're going to be here exactly as long as you want us to be here. So we can walk with our head up and with faith, knowing that we don't have to fear anything. We can be bold in our walk with you. We can have faith, Lord, knowing that when it's our time, you'll take us home and not a minute sooner. And so, Lord, while we're here, help us to fulfill the purpose and the plan that you do have for us in this life and to do it in a way that pleases you, that's in accordance with your will and in a way that produces a greater faith within us because we know that your word tells us without faith it's impossible to please you. So we want to be a people of faith that's unafraid but full of faith. So Lord, would you strengthen us for that? And we ask for this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.